to the first episode of the official As Began podcast, hosted by Dr. Alex Nicely. Hello, it's Alex Nicely from Graz. I'm happy to be here recording a podcast for As Began because I now get to meet, through As Began, somebody whose work I've admired for, well, it seems to me like forever. It's Professor Frank Rimmler of the University of Paris. Is it the University of Paris? Well, I'll find out. Of Hôpital Necker, whose specialty is the gastroenterology of inflammation of mucosal bowel disease and the enterobiome. Uh, in short, everything. He has provided us with, as a basis for discussion, one of his articles that sets out how one ought to approach diagnosis in an infant with early onset inflammatory bowel disease, how to make the diagnosis and what to do next. And with that, Professor Rimina, welcome. You're on. Hi. Hi, Alex. Uh, very nice uh to meet you and thank you for the very kind words. Indeed, uh, we crossed our ways uh, during the Aspigen meetings over a couple of years, but um, we never had the chance to meet in person. So it's uh, this Zoom uh, technique that allows us really to sit together. Um, thank you for the kind introduction. It's uh, indeed time is flying. It's more than 25 years that I'm working in the field of IBD. And today we want to discuss uh, the very special topic, an important topic uh, that we call early very early onset IBD. And we did a collaborative work um, through Aspergan. We created a network that is called a working group that is called Genius, the Genius Network, that allowed us to collect patients over the last uh, years in more than 45 centers uh, of Aspergan uh, members. And this work allowed to collect 207, if I remember well, patients, yeah, 207 patients that we analyzed with the question, do they have a monogenetic form of intestinal inflammation, uh, so-called Mendelian or monogenetic IBD form? And what we learned in this collaborative study is that when you precisely phenotype your patients, so look on where's the inflammation, is it small bowel disease only, is it colic, colonic disease only or combined, is there perianal inflammation with fistula or abscesses, are there extraintestinal manifestations like skin or autoimmune diseases or whatever associated, you will be able to um, find up a sort of um, phenotype, genotype uh, analysis with a possibility to obtain a genetic diagnosis using new techniques. I think we'll discuss that in a minute, where we see that patients who have small intestinal inflammation with very early onset, they have in approximately 60% of cases a genetic uh, defect that we were able to identify. Also, if it's colonic inflammation with perianal inflammation, there are about 40% uh, of patients or almost half of the patients where we find a genetic defect. But if it's just a colonic, isolated colonic disease, 
Uh, the situation is different. Most of these patients, over 80%, close to 90%, do not have a genetic defect that we were able to identify. So this is a collaborative work. Um, which uh, highlighted that indeed um, Espigan is the right uh, uh, society or platform, if I want to say, to have uh, to initiate uh, this collaborative work. And it is the way to collect sufficient data. And um, there are other networks that are working um, in North America. And over time, we were able to get collaboration with these colleagues um, to have really a worldwide uh, collaboration now, which is very, very interesting and encouraging. That is indeed what ESPGAN is all about, the chance to put many persons' heads together and come out with something that is more than the sum of the parts. Now, if I understand correctly, we have isolated small bowel disease, Isolated colonic disease and colonic disease with perianal involvement, have I summed those up correctly? Yes. These were there should be a fourth category, which is large and small bowel disease at yeah. the same time. Uh, okay, go ahead. Okay, now my question is, are there different times of onset for different parts of these manifestations? For example, do people progress from large bowel only to large bowel with perianal? When do you know when the disease has reached its final genotypically associated phenotype in a given patient? Uh, good point. Thank you. I think there are two aspects. One is what we described and what we see in our patients is the full phenotype. So the a publication we produced um, of the Genius Network in JCC uh, three years back now, 2019, uses the full phenotype. It's, uh, there are patients who develop with time, who progress to the full phenotype, and those who already at diagnosis, at first symptoms, have uh, the full phenotype. And the message is that um, small bowel involvement, meaning entropathy, inflammation of the proximal intestinal tract is not the same as having it at the end of the intestinal tract, which means the colon with perianal inflammation. These are different diseases. And um, it reflects, if we go into more into details, and I think uh, our colleagues who are listening want to have details, small bowel uh, involvement usually are autoimmune diseases very often. Um, and we see in these phenotypes patients who have extra-intestinal autoimmune manifestations and uh, patients who have colonic perianal inflammation typically present defects in IL-10 signaling with uh, mutations in IL-10 receptor uh, chain alpha or beta or in the cytokine um, IL-10 itself. Right, but, uh, but at what time, well, <clears throat> I find myself as a pediatric hepatopathologist a little bit disappointed by my clinical colleagues. Their first approach to nearly any patient who has liver disease is, well, let's just squeeze the cells and look at the juice. We don't need you as a histopathologist to tell us anything. But your workup will require endoscopy, biopsy, and various assessments that have fallen by the wayside for pediatric liver disease, it seems to me. Am I 
assessing this situation correctly? Um, I do agree with you in the sense that we need a complete clinical workup to have the full phenotype of the patient. So it's really a clinical appreciation. It's not just um, doing a genetic work. In the end, it sums up if you do a molecular diagnosis and you have the genetic defect, it will help you to have a, a better way to treat your patient. But the diagnosis, there is redundancy. We have similar phenotypes that reflect different genetic defects, meaning you have inflammation in one part and perhaps some skin involvement, but the disease can be completely different. Um, if we look on the example of autoimmune enteropathy related to a, a mutation in the gene that is called LRBA or CTLA-4, it's exactly the same phenotype, but the gene is different and the therapy can be different also. And on the other hand, we have one gene that is defect, but the clinical presentation can be varying a lot. Um, another example, FOXP3 mutation with severe autoimmune entropathy. We have patients who have involvement of many, many organs and others who have really a monomorph um, presentation, meaning there are very few symptoms. So you need, um, and I think that's one of the messages and one of the challenges we have in Aspergan is to train our young colleagues, to educate them to be good doctors, meaning to see the clinical symptoms, to perform the right diagnostic workup in, in the GI field. Uh, we need uh, endoscopic procedures. We need uh, pathologists so that are well-trained to interpret correctly the findings. And we put together in a multidisciplinary team the different aspects of the patient. So it's a very clinical work on one side, and the genetic work helps us to advance, but we go back uh, to the clinical um, part to take care of our patients with new innovative therapy. I like this approach. It goes along with what I was trained, that you don't trust any one test to give you a definitive answer. You get an answer from a particular test, and then you step sideways, look at the patient, look at the problem from another perspective, and see if the answer is the same. Does the biopsy finding match the clinical diagnosis, match the genetic diagnosis? And if not, why not? What are other modifiers? What is possibly going on with this patient or that patient? Let me cut to the chase. A baby with what seems to be inflammatory bowel disease. Do you immediately go for a trio exoming procedure in order to have that cooking in the background while you do your endoscopic and clinical workup? Good point. That's very, very practical because uh, we do see babies, small children, with uh, severe diarrhea, bleeding, but it's not a genetic disease. And the uh, uh, most frequent causes of uh, inflammation due to infections or to allergic reactions are more frequent than these fancy rare monogenetic diseases. Mm -hmm. So the answer is no. You, you have to be a good clinician to avoid to put a patient who has comet protein allergy on a genetic panel because you think, oh, the skin is a little bit inflamed, it's allergy, and the child has diarrhea and a little bit of bleeding, it's a monogenetic disease. So you need to be a good clinician to avoid to have the situation. But on the other hand, if you have a child 
um, young child below the age of two years who has recurrent and chronic diarrhea and you do not have a clinical clue, you don't understand exactly what's happening, then you uh, send this patient to a specialist if you are not the specialist yourself and do the clinical workup to have arguments to say, yes, we need the genetic diagnosis. So you really have to be a clinician. It's not just uh, sending all blood, uh, of blood of all your patients to the lab to have DNA uh, extracted and the genetic sampling. That's not the, for me, it's not the right medicine. That's not the way to go. And once again, that makes very good sense to me, even if, well, well, I'll leave that point for a moment. You have now a panel of monogenetic disorders that show up in their most pronounced form in infancy. Think of them as primary colors. Reds, blues, yellows, highly saturated, highly visible. What about the pastel shades? What are we finding as we approach, presumably, different later onset inflammatory bowel disease, looking for a contribution from the genes that are so clearly involved as monogenetic in the very young patients? We do have uh, data on that. That's a very good point. Um, it can translate to what we just discussed to test all young children with uh, symptoms that evoke intestinal inflammation in IBD to testing all adult patients or teenagers with this disease to say not to miss a genetic or monogenetic disease, just test them all. The answer is that's not the right approach. And um, there are very few. We did some studies with our adult colleagues to test if uh, on a hundred of patients if there are missed monogenetic diseases in their multifactorial or um, classical IBD, if we want to call the disease like that. That is hardly the case. There are very few patients, but there are some patients. If we turn it around, we have a genetic defect that is well characterized, and we want to know when does the disease start. The majority of patients, they start classically, as it is written in the textbook, very early in life, the first weeks or months of life. But there are some of them who start at 8 years or even at 22 years. Oh so there are forms that are a little bit um, milder, if you want to say, though, and uh, develop later on. But there are also missed diagnoses because the symptoms are not so severe and people uh, are not aware of the disease. And they make uh, the final diagnostic steps, which is the genetic testing uh, lately. So we saw patients who have uh, a mutation in the gene that is called XIAP. It's a gene that codes for regulation of apoptosis, and that really mimics uh, Crohn's disease with co severe colon colonic inflammation. Um, there are, can be fistula, perianal inflammation, and these patients uh, resist to um, classical therapy, but they are healed by bone marrow transplant. And some of these patients present a little bit later in life, uh, adolescents or young adults, with a severe disease once they are clinically manifest. And um, if you do not perform the genetic testing, you will consider them as refractory IBD. And I think this brings us to what are the criteria 
to test the right patient and which is the right test uh, for these patients. And we performed a, um, a collaborative work also within Espigen, uh, motivated and initiated by the Porto IBD group to collect uh, with our colleagues the um, consensus and uh, based on the literature for whom to no, who is the right patient to test, uh, to have a genetic test, sorry for that. And we came up with a couple of criteria, meaning a child who presents within the first two years of life with intestinal inflammation that is severe and persists and allergy is excluded, is a good candidate to have a genetic test. Um, below the age of six years, if you have uh, clinical symptoms that are really evocative, mainly extraintestinal additional symptoms, of a monogenetic form, these are also good candidates, but do not test IBD patients, adult patients, adolescents that do not have particular uh, factors that suggest a monogenetic disease, and these factors can be familial form, there are many members of the same family, or it's a consanguineous family, which is a risk factor for genetic, genetic disease, or patients do not at all respond to therapy, uh, therapy that is well conducted. So these are the, the the factors that we highlighted to um, propose a genetic testing for our patients. So unless the clinical background is supportive and unless there are factors in the clinical history, the family history, that suggest an abnormality of genetic origin, then we're left with IBD tout court, the sort of IBD that about whose origins we seem to know very little. Yeah, um, we call it idiopathic IBD, or it's a multifactorial disease IBD, um, and or classical IBD. We do know quite a lot on uh, IBD now. But what we do not know is the origin, the cause. And uh, this research is really frustrating, but I think it's easily understandable because there is not a single cause. It's really a sequence of events. And for me personally, Crohn's disease is not one single disease. It's an array of different diseases. So um, the monogenetic diseases really helped us a lot to better understand classical IBD, because the defects that were discovered over the last, uh, it started in 2008-2009 with the first discovery, so it's about 13-15 years a maximum. The defects that were discovered point to key checkpoints in the immune system or on the epithelial barrier. If these checkpoints fail, the system is not in homeostasis and it helps better to understand inflammation because now we know many of the key players, of the key actors, either in uh, immune cells or on the level of epithelial cells. And with this knowledge, it's easier to understand the pathophysiology of inflammation in the intestinal tract. There are three partners, I would say. One is the immune system in the intestinal mucosa. One is the epithelial barrier, so the epithelial cells, but also the mucus that is on top, saturated with antibacterial peptides, etc. And the third partner is the environment. 
and environment is mainly the microbiome, the bacteria that live in the intestine, and uh, the factors that influence like uh, food, which type of food, food ingredients, but also infections, bacteria, um, antibiotics, etc. And the environmental part is extremely important to develop classical IBD. So here the genetic part does not really help, but the genetic part does help in this interaction because there are factors that regulate the relation between environment, bacteria, and the epithelial barrier immune system. So you mentioned bone marrow transplantation as a route to cure of a particular form of inflammatory bowel disease of early onset. That makes sense if the immune cells within the mucosa are not doing their job, replace them with ones that are. Bowel transplantation, on the other hand, replacing the epithelium of the gut is, uh, that's music for the future. But dietary manipulation, dietary manipulation as an independent contributor, that's something that a parent can get a handle on and feel I'm making a contribution to helping my child do better. Give us some examples. Interesting uh, points. Um, indeed, the three, <clears throat> I would even add uh, medical therapy, drug therapy, four approaches are, uh, are complementary and depends on the type of disease and the cause, which is the right way to go for a patient. Um, a monogenetic defect that... Um, affects the function of regulatory T-cells, effector T-cells, dendritic cells, or whatever that causes, that is the cause of the inflammation, is healed if you perform bone marrow transplant or hematopoietic stem cell transplant because you correct the defect and uh, inflammation will not recur. So this is the right approach for monogenetic disease that affects these uh, immune controls or immune cells. A good example is children with IL-10 deficiency a uh, disorder that we described uh, the community and uh, personally also published in that field uh, more than 20 years uh, before as neonatal Crohn's disease. Finally, it's a mm, defect in mm, IL-10. Mm, mm, these mm. patients are healed with um, bone marrow transplant and not only healed, these patients have a very high risk of uh, developing a lymphoma. A couple of years uh, later, the diagnosis or the onset of the symptoms um, one of our colleagues, uh, uh, Jan Sanderson, for instance, published a case series a long time back of IB neonatal IBD, neonatal Crohn's that develop lymphoma. Right. And if you perform bone marrow transplant early, once you have the right diagnosis, these patients have no complications and they are really healed. This is great. Bone marrow transplant has its place in the treatment of uh, neonatal monogenetic IBD depends on which uh, gene defect. You mentioned the second uh, approach as uh, transplant of the small bowel uh, or of the intestinal tract. That exists. Uh, these are the um, therapies. It's not uh, future or music of the future. It's reality today. In our center, we do perform bone mal um, small bowel transplant. Sorry. But this is an indication, it's not for the inflammatory part, it's if the epithelial cells do not work properly. And the diseases are different. It's neonatal early onset diarrhea that is very severe, that's life-threatening uh, sometimes, and uh, 
translate to intestinal failure requiring a long time or lifelong parenteral nutrition. And uh, examples are microvillous atrophy or epithelial dysplasia. This type of diseases, currently there is no drug therapy, requires lifelong parenteral nutrition, and here small bowel transplant can be an alternative. But it's a different topic. It's constitutive uh, anthracite disorders. It's not the inflammatory aspect that we discussed today. So Mm -hmm. a small bowel Mm -hmm. transplant has no place in therapy (coughs) of IBD in 2022. It was to rescue patients who had repeat surgery and ended up to have short bowel, but that's uh, no more happening luckily in IBD. The third aspect that you uh, raised, which is very, very interesting, is to manipulate, to change the environment. And if you want to impact on the bacteria, there are two approaches. Either you discuss can we change the bacteria that's a uh, fecal transplant that is uh, under investigation mainly for colitis but also for Crohn's disease patients and the other way around the food impacts on the composition of bacteria is there a way to treat these patients with changing alimentation to have a different uh, form of uh, food uh, restriction exclusion or whatever diet and this is on the way um, There are nice studies that show it is possible for Crohn's disease, and there are some suggestions now for ulcerative colitis. It's for the multifactorial IBD. It is not a treatment approach that is uh, proposed for a genetic defect because you will not change that genetic genetic defect. Perhaps the interaction you can um, help a little bit with the environment, with the bacteria, but uh, there are no studies saying this is the right way to go forward. But it is the right way to advance for IBD patients, mainly Crohn's disease patients today. Um, And we test in our clinical practice, we do test if they are responders to food therapy, to the nutritional therapy or not. So it's not future, it is reality today. And the fourth aspect that I added is uh, drug therapy. Drug therapy is necessary to reduce the inflammatory load, to, to calm down the immune system that is overactivated. And it uh, is perfectly um, working for the majority of classical idiopathic Crohn's disease or UC patients. And many also of the genetic defects, you can elevate the inflammation, you can reduce the inflammatory load, but some do not respond. And that's uh, a tricky thing. And that's where we are really grateful to have the genetic uh, testing because we can understand and predict what is the right way to go for a patient. Gotcha. Now, I agree with you about small bowel transplantation. How could I not agree with you about small bowel transplantation as being unsuitable in a in a inflammatory mucosal defect? It seems to be what they used to call spanking a baby using an axe. There's no point to it. But what about, are there prospects for altering intestinal mucosa stem cells for genetic therapy on that basis, replacing the epithelium and not the rest of the tube? I think that is uh, music of the future. That's um, for the future. That's really uh, challenging. The intestinal epithelium, it's possible to perform gene therapy. Uh, gene therapy in our center is established for several diseases, mainly immunodeficiency. 
But uh, with our immunology and gene uh, therapeutic department, we're working on correcting FOXP3, which uh, affects the function of regulatory T cells by gene therapy. So the technique exists to correct the gene defect, and it um, is possible also in epithelial cells, in enterocytes. But the system uh, renews within three days, within three to five days, you completely renew your epithelial setting. So you need stability and you have to go, as you mentioned, to the stem cells. It's really the source of the new generation of cells that has to be corrected. And this is not a, an easy under um, uh, an easy enterprise. Uh, I think it's um, there's some research ongoing, but to date there is no um, translation into clinics. It's premature, and I'm not sure that we have data that encur encourage this on a solid basis today. For me, it's music of the future. But um, there are patients that will be candidates for this type of approach. And the second approach that would be wonderful, and I'm dreaming of, is having a way to um, make the intestinal tract proliferate and to regenerate to avoid these uh, short bowel syndrome situations uh, that are awful <coughs> just to increase mm -hmm. the length. But mm -hmm. once more, we are out of the frame of uh, IBD. Well, we're out of the frame of IBD. That's a fascinating topic. I concur. I concur. <laughs> but we it's should part of our clinical work. <laughs> we yeah, also yeah, care for these patients. <laughs> we should go back to our sheep, as they say in French. <laughs> um, let's see. You are a truly internationally educated and trained person. You come from, is it near Freiburg? That part That's of Germany? That's close to Freiburg, yeah. Freiburg, Black Forest, which is, yeah. <clears throat> which is in, the, in the Black Forest, or just across the border from the it Black is. Forest. It's, it's, well, French is as good as German, German is as good as French, Basel, Baal, everything is multicultural there. Now, you took advantage of the German educational system to start off with, and then you moved to France. Correct. Tell me a little bit about that, about that part of your Lebenslauf, of your, of your curriculum, Vidi. Oh, it's multifactorial. <laughs> there are many elements that uh, made me move around in the world. Uh, the first uh, thing is curiosity, um, to see how, uh, as a student, how education is done in other universities, how people teach, how medicine is exercised in different countries. So I ended up having clinical training in five different uh, countries, North America and Europe, which is quite uh, amazing to have this opportunity. And the second element is to learn new cultures, new languages, to speak with people who have a different uh, lifestyle, etc. That's uh, wonderful to learn. And uh, one important thing is that uh, on a personal Level. My wife is from uh, France, from Paris, so it was a very important factor that influenced me to finally settle in France. And uh, once I had the opportunity uh, to go to Necker for Malade, which was um, given to me by Jacques Schmitz. Jacques Schmitz was one of the former presidents of Aspergen long time ago. Uh, the younger colleagues don't know him anymore, unfortunately, but he's still around. I meet with him every month. He was the head of the department of the GI hepatology and nutrition at Necker Enfant Malade, and he finally uh, convinced me to work in 
in Paris, where I'm now for more than 20 years, and uh, it's a nice place to be. And it's uh, still very international research and really international also clinical work. I have uh, daily exchange with colleagues all over Europe and, and beyond, so it's stimulating. <coughs> Again, that's part of what ESPGAN is all about. It is, it is. I, I mentioned this to you only because a little bit later on, We're going to ask for a song from your native country. And I'm really, really interested to know which country you're going to pick. <laughs> but, be but before I put you on that spot, let me put you on a different one. And that is, have we covered what you wanted to talk about in terms of early onset inflammatory bowel disease? Have I left something out? Is there something that you would like to reemphasize or... Um, we did touch on the essential points, saying that uh, monogenetic IBD is rare, but it is relevant for a pediatric gastroenterologist to know these uh, diseases. So it's part of the curriculum. I think it is part of the training. You, even if diseases are rare, it's important to depict these rare patients. Um, this knowledge helps to better understand intestinal inflammation, interaction with the environment. We did discuss this uh, lengthily, giving rise to new treatment therapies. And I think the genetic uh, testing, like in all clinical disciplines now, made us really, um, how to say, made us stronger or helped us to better understand and to help our patients in situations in the past. I remember when I started in this field, there was no expectancy for these patients, and now we understand what they have due to the genetic defect that is identified and know what to do, and we can cure some of these patients by therapies like discussed with, like bone marrow transplant. That's amazing. It completely changed. So it's a wonderful field. Right. Thank you very much, sir. Um, I've, I feel my, that I've learned a lot. My pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. And um, I'm afraid that now our time is almost running out. So um, what about that song? Um, I'm very much in uh, old music and baroque music, and uh, it's, uh, I think, more or less uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, where it's one of my favorites. So it's not uh, due to the origin, but it's more the, the style and uh, the sense of what is in there. So, so what's it going to be? Give us the name. Uh, yes, it's called Jesu minus Lebensfreude. <laughs> Jesus, That's, uh, Jesus, joy of uh, man's desiring. Yeah. If, yeah, you can translate it a little yeah, bit in yeah. that uh, direction. That's how we know it in That's English, yeah. amazing music um, for those who like this type of music. So, and, yeah.
If you would like to listen to the song in full length, please check out our Espigan playlist. Yes, that that music is supranational. <laughs> and supranational is, of course, what Espigan is meant to be. What our collaborations through Espigan are meant to be. Dr. Rimina, thank you so much for this. Um, I have to say goodbye now, but before we end this podcast, do you have anything in particular that you'd like to communicate to the listeners? Thank you very much, Alex. It was a pleasure to discuss with you, and I hope that uh, you all that are listening enjoyed it. As you s heard, this collaborative work was possible due to interaction of many colleagues within uh, Espigen and beyond. And I invite the young colleagues just to join the ongoing activities and give their input for future and new activities. That's uh, the way we move forward, and that's what Espigen is for. So please feel free and join as much as possible and bring in your energy. Wonderful. Have a nice day. Bye-bye, everybody.